Hello, and welcome to Pin Drop World News, the show where, each week, we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho, here to guide us through today's show as we explore the news around El Salvador. Specifically, we'll be looking at the country's adoption of Bitcoin, its criminal gang crackdown, and, as is often the case on the show, concerns of authoritarian tendencies. We'll be hearing from Will Salgado, the mayor of San Miguel, a city in El Salvador. And as always, we'll conclude with a panel to discuss the news and what our guests had to say. On today's panel, we will have myself, alongside my co-producers, Diego Austin and Nick Castillo. Before we get into the news, it's country profile time. We don't expect you to know everything about El Salvador. We certainly didn't before this week. So, here are some fast facts. Its president is Nayib Bukele. The capital is San Salvador. Its population is estimated at 6.3 million people as of 2021. Its currencies are the United States dollar and, yes, Bitcoin. And the official language is Spanish. Lastly, a fun fact, or maybe a not-so-fun fact. El Salvador once took place in something called the football war, or the soccer war. And yes, essentially, a soccer match led to such high tensions that El Salvador literally went to war with its neighbor. That's the gist of it, at least. Now, let's start with our exploration of the country's history and politics, and begin in the 19th century, when El Salvador, along with other Central American countries, gained independence from Spain in 1821. Initially, El Salvador actually petitioned the United States for annexation and statehood, fearing that they would be forcibly absorbed by Mexico. But after a revolution in Mexico, the new Mexican government voted to allow El Salvador and the rest of Central America to decide their own fate. These states briefly formed the Federal Republic of Central America, which aimed to create a united Central American nation. However, this union was short-lived, and El Salvador declared itself an independent republic in 1839. Throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, El Salvador experienced political instability, characterized by frequent changes in leadership and occasional conflicts. Since Spanish times, wealth had long been concentrated in the hands of a few wealthy landowners. Volcanic soils were especially useful for growing indigo for dyes. But as synthetic dyes were developed in the mid-19th century, growing shifted to the increasingly popular coffee. For decades, coffee would account for more than half of the country's export revenues. In the late 19th century, political power struggles and tensions between rival factions intensified, leading to a series of military coups and dictatorships. The most notable figure during this period was General Maximiliano Hernández Martínez, who ruled as dictator from 1931 to 1944. His regime was marked by repression, censorship, and human rights abuses. However, the mid-20th century witnessed a period of significant social and political transformation in El Salvador. In the 1970s and 1980s, the country was embroiled in a brutal civil war between the government and leftist guerrilla groups, primarily the Farabundo Martinacional Liberation Front, or FMLN. This conflict, fueled by deep-rooted social and economic inequalities, 
lasted for over a decade and resulted in immense suffering and loss of life. This turmoil also led to a crash in the country's coffee industry, which has still not recovered. It's worth noting that our guest today, Will Salgado, served in the government forces during this time. Salgado was an alleged member of the Black Shadow during this time, an extermination group tasked with killing potential criminals. In 1995, Salgado was charged with homicide and illegal grouping in association with his alleged participation in Black Shadow, but Salgado was found not guilty in 1996. The Civil War ended in 1992 with the signing of the Chapultepec Peace Accords, which established a framework for peace and democratic governance in El Salvador. Under the Accords, the FMLN disarmed and transformed into a political party and has since participated in democratic elections. Since the end of the Civil War, El Salvador has made strides in strengthening its democratic institutions and promoting socioeconomic development. However, challenges such as crime, poverty, and corruption continue to impact the nation's progress. In recent years, El Salvador has experienced a unique political shift. In 2019, Nayib Bukele, a young and charismatic leader, won the presidential election, representing the center-right party Miran Alianza por la Unidad Nacional, or GANA. Bukele's presidency has been marked by a strong focus on security issues, combating corruption, and implementing social programs. During this time, he even broke away from Ghana and formed his own party, Nuevas Ideas, which doesn't seem to have much of a political ideology besides populism. It's worth noting that Bukele's presidency has also faced criticism for concerns over democratic checks and balances, particularly regarding the independence of the judiciary and freedom of the press. Now, let's get into our big issues, starting with Bitcoin. As mentioned, Bitcoin is now an official currency of El Salvador alongside the United States dollar. But how did this come to be? At a Bitcoin conference in Miami, Florida in 2021, El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, announced that his country was preparing to adopt Bitcoin as an official currency. Bukele argued that in a country where 70% of people couldn't access traditional financial services, the digital Bitcoin would help millions to access useful financial services. Moreover, Bukele made the case that Bitcoin was the future, and El Salvador stood to gain from being an early adopter. With a supermajority in the Legislative Assembly at this point, Bukele's populist party, Nuevas Ideas, quickly wrote and passed legislation that made El Salvador the first country in the world to adopt a cryptocurrency as legal tender. People can now pay taxes, buy groceries, and conduct just about any monetary transaction with Bitcoin, in addition to the country's other currency, the United States dollar. To push for faster adoption, the government promised people a free $30 gift and discounted gasoline prices for those who downloaded the government's e-wallet app, Chivo. Moreover, Bitcoin has proved volatile, as many critics feared, with the currency losing 33% of its value since El Salvador started this experiment. As of 2022, 60% of Salvadorans have Chivo wallets, almost double those who have traditional bank accounts. However, only 20% of those who have the Chivo app reported continuing to use it after spending their $30 bonus. It's early, but so far the adoption of Bitcoin hasn't been catastrophic, nor has it been some grand boon. GDP growth in 2022 was 2.6%, basically at pre-pandemic levels. 
And likewise, El Salvador's debt-to-GDP ratio has remained high at about 76%. Now, on to the second big issue, and that is the criminal crackdown that the government has engaged in. Since the Civil War of the 80s and 90s, El Salvador has struggled with criminal gang violence, with the country averaging 18 murders every day in the year 2015. Since 2015, safety began to improve gradually, but in the month before Nayib Bukele took office in 2019, there were still roughly nine murders every day in El Salvador. Shortly after taking office, the Bukele administration introduced its territorial control plan. It consists of seven phases, the first five being preparation, opportunity, modernization, incursion, and extraction, and the last two have not yet been made public. The preparation phase began in 2019, with aims to expand police presence in areas of high gang activity and to lock down prisons to prevent communication between incarcerated gang members and those on the street. The opportunity phase consisted in giving young people alternatives to gangs, increasing funds for education, and opening community centers. Modernization focused on updating police equipment to the latest and greatest technology. The incursion phase began in 2021 and features the doubling of soldiers from 20,000 to 40,000 and even further increasing their presence in areas of heavy gang membership. Beginning in 2022, the extraction phase, the latest one to be started, is seeing the government finish the largest prison in the country and the arrests of gang members who remain in communities is only ramping up. Here's what Bukele had to say. And now comes phase five, which is the part of extraction of the criminals that still stay in those communities that remain in all the places of our country, in our cities, in the field, basically anywhere. The territorial control plan has been heavily criticized by outside observers, however. Groups from the U.S. State Department to the United Nations to Amnesty International have denounced the plan, especially because it does not provide a right to legal representation and allows detention for two weeks without seeing a judge. These concerns were heightened in March of 2022, when Bukele introduced a national state of exception, which suspended certain civil liberties, including due process. International groups are concerned that many, many innocent people could be imprisoned only because of certain suspicious features, like tattoos. However, the results are undeniable. El Salvador has become a dramatically safer country in the space of only a few years. As mentioned, nine people were murdered every day on the eve of Bukele's inauguration. In June of 2023, it was 0.3 murders every day. In four years, El Salvador went from one murder every three hours to one murder every three days. Now, these are the official statistics, and they are disputed, but there is no contest to the general and dramatic trend of increasing safety in El Salvador. Now, the last big issue, and that is concerns of Nayib Bukele's authoritarianism. Outside observers are not only concerned about El Salvador's territorial control plan, but also about the erosion of judicial independence and constitutional violations by the president. Many say El Salvador is drifting towards authoritarianism. The El Salvador Supreme Court proved a check on President Bukele's plans in the first years of his term, blocking parts of his territorial control plan 
in rejecting his bid to run for re-election, noting that the Constitution limits presidents to one term. But when Bukele's Nuevas Ideas party won a supermajority in the 2021 Legislative Assembly elections, Bukele had the five judges who most frequently blocked him removed and reinstated with five new judges. The new court approved Bukele's request to pursue a second term. José Miguel Vivanco of Human Rights Watch compared Bukele's tactics to the very gangs he was trying to destroy. What he is implementing in, 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 in El Salvador is typical um, tactics of, uh, of a mafia state where you take revenge um, uh, against uh, other members of the family. Uh, that is so, obviously is not the way in a, in a country where there is rule of law. Observers were also concerned when in 2020, the president sent the military into the country's legislative assembly during a vote on the security budget. Critics called the move an act of intimidation, and supporters argued it was simply symbolic of the impact the security budget would have for the troops. In 2020, the Economist Intelligence Index downgraded El Salvador from a flawed democracy to a hybrid regime, the classification it still holds today. However, supporters of Bukele point out that the president maintains a roughly 90% approval rating among Salvadorans. And yes, those opinion polls are considered pretty reliable. Bukele is the most popular world leader among the citizens of their country. Yet, he is also one of the most criticized by international actors. All right, that's the big issues for today. Now, going on to our guest interview. I pre-recorded it yesterday, and you'll be hearing English dubs because the interview was conducted in Spanish. Hello, and welcome to Pindrop. I am Francisco Camacho, and I'm speaking now with the mayor of San Miguel, El Salvador, Mr. Will Salgado. Mr. Salgado, thank you very much, and welcome to Pindrop today. Thank you very much for the invitation, and greetings to all the friends who are going to listen to this interview. Thank you very much, Mr. Salgado. I want to start with the topic that is in the news more than any other, in the United States at least, about El Salvador, and that is the reduction in crime. Tell me, the statistics at the national level are quite incredible. Uh, but in San Miguel, are you kind of looking at the same thing in terms of those reductions? Yes, San Miguel is where this is being seen the most in the rest of the country, because San Miguel is like the commercial capital of the eastern zone. It is where most family remittances come from. It is the area of the country where industry and commerce is very strong, where a lot of money is seen circulating and a lot of currency. And since President Bukele and his new assembly entered, because the first year he governed well, things were like this, worse than ever. But with the new legislative assembly that he already won a majority in, everything began to change. Now in San Miguel, there's less car thefts, less assaults, less rapes, less drug trafficking on, drug trafficking on the streets, and also quite a reduction in homicides, even reaching a total of zero. Incredible. And okay, those changes are usually accredited to the assembly, to the president Bukele at the national level something like the territorial control plan, but are they working together with municipal authorities like you, or is it usually only at the national level? 
No, the government summons us and invites us to participate together because the government says that there is strength in unity. Okay, okay. C continuing with President Bukele, it seems that you give a lot of cre credit to President Bukele in those changes. But equally, you are still a member of the Ghana Party. My question is, considering that President Bukele changed parties to Nuevas Ideas, why haven't you done the same? Well, in El Salvador, a law is approved in the Legislative Assembly. The deputies approved it, the turncoat law, where mayors and deputies, only mayors and deputies, are prohibited from changing parties. Therefore, the only one who can change parties is the president of the republic, and he has no legal problems. But the mayors and deputies, we cannot move from one party to another. Before you could, before in the year 2000, when I entered for the first time, I ran, I participated in five elections, and in the five elections, I was with five different parties. But after 2015, they made the new turncoat law, so that no one can move from one party to another. And now, well, no one can change, mayors and deputies. Ah, uh, okay. And that law, does it, does it seem fair to you? It doesn't seem fair to me because they force people to be against their will in a party. The parties can abuse a person, marginalize them, do whatever they want, the leadership of the parties. And that person only has two options, either bow their heads or leave the party and no longer participate. Because to be able to participate, you have to wait three years without having participated in order to switch to another party. But you are still content with the Ghana party, right? No, I am. And I have to be content by force and I can't go to another. Okay, okay. Changing themes towards the economy and the other topic that is in the news so much in the United States... Uh, the economy and Bitcoin. Almost two years ago, El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as a currency like the dollar. But tell me, are those currencies used on the same level or is it quite evident that one is more used than the other in El Salvador? It is that there are different audiences. Adults use the dollar more, the older adults. People between the ages of 40 and 70, we prefer paper and we prefer the dollar. But people between 16 to 30, 35 years old use the Bitcoin currency a lot. And do you believe the adoption of Bitcoin has had an impact, uh, for better or worse, uh, on the economy of El Salvador or in San Miguel? I think it's more for the better because it's one more option for tourists to come to the country and spend money because I've seen many tourists who don't like to put money in their pocket but instead like to use their virtual wallet and they go around paying with Bitcoin. And if in the businesses they do not accept it, I have seen foreigners ask, do you accept Bitcoin in your business? No, they say. Ah, well, he goes to another business where they will accept it. So the people who don't accept it lose customers that do sales. Okay, and then considering a possible impact of the economy in some ways, I don't know what the impact is that led to this, but I want to talk about emigration. Obviously, all of El Salvador for many years has had this experience of a lot of emigration, a lot of people leaving the country. In San Miguel, between 2005 and 2010, the statistics seem to have been very strong there. But since 2010, 
well, during your terms, we have even seen a reversal of that, that already the population in San Miguel is increasing again. Can you explain why this happened? Because there's more investment, there's more commerce, there's more industry, and now because there is more security, many Salvadoran brothers who live abroad, others who are from San Miguel, are coming to invest in the country. Right now, finding the labor for bricklayers, plumbers, electricity in San Miguel is very difficult because there is too much bidding, too much demand for construction, and the local workforce of San Miguel cannot go. And that is due to the security that the people have and the motivation to be able to come and invest in El Salvador. But what is the policy that yielded that investment? Because, as I just said, we already saw that increase in the population, the reduction in immigration, since 2010, long before President Bukele. Yes, the problem is that the East and San Miguel were the hardest hit by the war because there was a civil war in El Salvador, a guerrilla war, from 1982 to 1990-something. All the people of the villages around San Miguel, most of them left the United States at that time. But they left small children, mothers, fathers, here in El Salvador. Over time, they began to take, one by one, the children. They began to take their parents as they were fixing their documents in the United States. Suddenly, they didn't have anyone else to take. Well, now the phenomenon is happening that people are no longer being taken because they were already taken away. Now they are returning, but as an investment. And many of them are already returning with the retired mentality, like coming to live in El Salvador, already retired, and being able to invest their savings in something here in the city. Okay, okay. And, and I want to continue with President Bukele briefly. His critics say things like, look, in the Constitution it says that he can only be president for one term, and he is already trying to find a second. And obviously the population, the Salvadorans, are very supportive of the president. In your opinion, which is more important, that loyalty to the public or to the Constitution in that regard? Well, I'm of the mentality that what is good cannot be changed, and if we have something good, then we must maintain it. In many countries, including the United States, I see that presidents have been re-elected two times. In many countries, presidents have the opportunity to be re-elected up to two times. In Russia, I see they are re-elected on more than two occasions. So I think that as long as a person goes to popular elections and the people continue to elect them, it's because they are doing something good. I hear you, but also the second great criticism of President Bukele is that this general plan to fight crime in the process is possible that many people who have not done anything wrong are also getting detained. In your opinion, considering that, but also the effect on crime reduction, is it worth it? Well, no war stops having collateral effects. All war has collateral effects. And, for example, when the planes are going to Vietnam to drop a bomb, they were dropping the bomb on the terrorists. But it's possible the bomb would land a bit to the side of the terrorists and the expansion of the explosion could hurt innocent people. Well, those are the collateral effects. It's very difficult for everything to be perfect. Moving from that towards your political future, obviously, in the last year, the United States, uh, in the United States government, has sanctioned you, and they have said 
that you have participated in drug trafficking, etc. This decision of the U.S. government, first, if you have a response, please say so. And also, has this affected your intentions for your future? No me ha afectado en nada. It hasn't affected me at all. It does give me feelings and it gives me a lot of pain because I have my children in the United States who were born in the United States and it was the country that I loved the most, the country that I desired the most, the country that I visited the most, that I went on the most vacations in. It was the United States. It hurts me that this happened, but it hurts me because I can't go again. But what affects me? It does not affect me at all. You know, the, the only thing that affects me is that I can't go see my children in the United States. They come to see me in El Salvador. That is, I cannot go see them. It is the only thing that affects me. Besides that, there is nothing. My life is normal, calm. The only thing is that the United States, well, they prosecuted me with false information. I don't know who gave them that false information. I'm sorry that they haven't made sure that this information was not real. But since all cases have a time, no? There will come a time when things are going to be declassified and they're going to see that they got me into that, as they say, the Choto. Here in my country, the Choto means through no fault of my own. And hopefully we will see those documents sooner rather than later, considering that it is often many, many years before we know. Yeah, I've seen that in America. Sometimes they have sentenced a person to death, and it turns out that after they killed or executed them, it turns out that the person was innocent, but they already executed him. So that's how it usually happens. Sometimes there are errors. And considering that this decision by the U.S. government has not affected your plans, do you have any intentions on your political future? Are you focused on continuing to be mayor of San Miguel? Do you have aims at national politics or anything? No, I like my city. And the only position I like is the mayorship of my city. Besides that, nothing else interests me. Besides, I am 57 years old. From winning Mundu term, which is 2024 through 2027, I practically retire here. I retire and I would no longer participate in the mayoral elections of San Miguel. Well, in speaking of the mayor's office, I want to finish with something a little less heavy than some of the things we have talked about. The San Miguel Carnival is coming up in November. Well, my question is, tell us a little about the carnival, because I understand I have a neighbor who is Salvadoran, and she tells me that it is one of the biggest festivals in El Salvador. So talk a little about that and what happens at the festival. It is the biggest festival in Central America, not just El Salvador. The San Miguel Carnival is visited by people from all over the world. It is the biggest festival or party or carnival in Central America. It's a copy of the carnival in Rio de Janeiro, but better, because there are parades of floats, there are parties, there are more than 60 orchestras and national musical groups in the streets and avenues, more than 60, and eight international groups that come to sing and delight the Salvadoran people on Saturday, November 25th. Excellent. Mr. Will Salgado is the mayor of San Miguel in El Salvador, one of the largest cities in the entire country. Mr. Salgado, thank you very much for coming and speaking with Pindrop today. Well, thanks to you, and my best regards to all your friends who are going to listen to your program. All right, folks, welcome. It is now time for the Pindrop panel featuring myself, 
as well as my co-producers, Diego Austin and Nicholas Castillo. Uh, we're going to make today's panel a lot more conversational. Um, as some important points, uh, deliberately, not everyone here has done the same amount of research to try and promote some better conversations. Uh, but I'm going to pass it off to Diego first, because I think when we were talking about the recordings, I think you really hit to the crux of what is so defining about this moment in El Salvador. And I want to lastly add before you you hit us, you start us off, that you look a lot like Naib uh, Bukele right now in the recording. I know no one will be able to see this, but you have a blue t-shirt, you have the beard, and you even have the backwards baseball cap. The, the resemblance is uncanny. Uh, but go ahead, Diego, get us started. Well, I've got to say the um, the resemblance was unintentional, but I definitely see it. And I'd like to thank you for the uh, the comments, because, look, whether you like him or not, I think that President Bukele is quite the, the dashing figure. So I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. And now to get into the discussion. Well, when doing research on El Salvador, I think that there's two things that are clear. One is that Bukele's policies have worked to significantly reduce crime to combat MS-13, which is the main faction uh, compromising its security. Uh, and life has generally been better for most people in terms of security and safety. However, that has also come at the expense of democratic backsliding. So I think that this presents you with two big questions. One, is it even possible when you have a uh, non-state actor that's so entrenched in political activity and in the security crisis is it even possible to combat them while not having democratic backsliding and two is it is democratic siding worth it uh for greater security yeah i, I mean, can it's really start off with age-old question yeah it's an, it's, it's an age-old question isn't it yeah go ahead nick yeah as the guy who's done the least research on the panel i'll start by saying that i I don't know if I agree with, with the first question, and I'll, I'll say why. I'm, I'm not convinced from my own limited knowledge that the response in El Salvador has been really different from the responses we've seen in other Latin American states that have dealt with, with strong um, organized crime. So what, what, what you read about with El Salvador is like this heavily sort of militarized, um, intense police presence. The military is very much um, one of the um, largest actors. And I don't know if that's super different from Colombia or from Mexico, where the government has also sent, you know, militarized police and the military formal after a variety of like narco traffickers and, and cartels. I think the difference is that in El Salvador, it's been a lot more successful. And I'm not exactly sure why that's the case. Um, maybe my initial thought is that it has something to do with the geography of crime in El Salvador, that you're not dealing with um, cartels that can go and hide in the jungles, you're dealing with street gangs that have to be on the street. That's how they operate. And so it's much easier for the police to get to them, to get into these communities and to arrest them. Um, but I, I'm not I'm not convinced that there's some, I, I'm first not convinced that there's something super duper unique about the case of El Salvador. And I'm not convinced that it necessarily leads to democratic backsliding um, because we haven't seen the same kind of rapid ramp up of authoritarianism um, in Colombia or in Mexico that, that we've seen in El Salvador. Yeah, I'll half second what you said, Nick, and also half disagree. Uh, in terms of one, I think you're right about the geography. Like, compare it to, for example, uh, Mexico, and you really are talking about completely different types of gangs here, right? So it, it, it makes more sense that you can take gangs off the streets 
harder when they're spread in relatively rural, hard to find areas. So I do think that is a contributing factor. I would also note that crime in El Salvador was already declining before Nayib Bukele came in. Homicides were declining before Nayib Bukele came in. But I also think it's kind of undeniable that his policies have had this dramatic effect. And I do think there's a lot to be said that the strategy is different from other Central American countries, mostly in terms of the scope. I also think in terms of the level of corruption that is in the military and police in El Salvador, I I imagine it has to be a lot lower for these efforts to be as successful as they are. And again, the scope is... Yeah, other Latin American, Central American countries have tried to do this kind of thing, but they've not gone for the level of Bukele. They've not gone for like trying to double the amount of uh, police officers on the streets in a year. It is an unprecedented scope. And I do think it is hard to deny this impact. And now just to get to your question more a little bit quicker, Diego, in terms of is it worth it, this democratic backsliding? I I do think that anytime you try to tackle a system that's illegal and so entrenched as the gangs were in El Salvador, it's going to be an inherently somewhat undemocratic process. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing if it is maintained as a short-term solution. The problem, of course, is that oftentimes that short-term concentration of power, well, when people get that power, they usually don't like to give it up. No, I I definitely agree with you towards that. And uh, I mean, a big source of controversy now in El Salvador is that presidents uh, originally weren't supposed to be reelected. But now under Bukele, that has changed. Uh, But yet it's also seems like he has a popular will with the people behind him. So um, it's a tricky question, definitely. But I, I do think that some of his policies surely do have elements that are less democratic. I think the big one is uh, the way in which the territorial control um, law was enacted. I think that was 2020. That's a, That was a huge law that pretty much just bolstered the security forces and gave mm-hmm. them more weapons and ability to fight gangs. But you see the way it's enacted is that um, he Bukele had the military go into parliaments while they were sort of debating the laws and people saw that as sort of pressuring people to sign the law. But I I do, I I guess to say my stance on the question, um, while I do think there has been some democratic backsliding, I would agree. I don't think it has been severe. I would not call El Salvador like even a competitive authoritarian state right now. Um, And I, I do think when you look at the statistics, when you see uh, just even like people being interviewed and accounting for how they can like go to a soccer field now without being worried about like a turf war, mm-hmm. um, it, it seems like for now it is worth it. But yeah, like you say, um, you do want to look to the future and make sure that it doesn't go too far. I mean, I'll, I do, I'll say I, that it's up. Ob- go ahead. It's, it's obvious that um, there's been a lot of success with the anti-crime strategy. But like, again, I, I'm not all that convinced that that relates to things like court packing or that that relates to like changing the constitution so that he can run for a, a second term. There's, there's no question that the anti-crime has been very successful and made big differences in people's lives. Um, but I think the character of um, 
of uh, Akelia is that he is very self-interested. He knows how to use media very well. He knows how popular he is and he knows how to take advantage of that. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily like a, a core component of the anti-crime strategy. That might just be his own personal uh, governance style. Well, well, the court packing and the anti-crime strategy are connected in that the court packing, which in this case we refer to firing five members of the El Salvador Supreme Court and replacing them, was done largely because they had vetoed things like certain parts of the territorial control plan, saying that you can't hold people uh, without probable cause type of thing, saying that they have to see a judge, write to an attorney. Blocking down parts of that plan is a contributing factor to why the Supreme Court, five members of the Supreme Court were ousted and replaced with people who are viewed as as broadly loyalist. I'd also say, um, yeah, it is interesting, Diego. He is incredibly popular, and that's undeniable. Um, but A, I think I would classify this as a kind of a hybrid regime, as something like competitive authoritarianism. Like, especially when it comes to the the erosion of the judicial independence. Like, even the fact that the Legislative Assembly is dominated by Nuevas Ideas, Bukele's party, that was done democratically. But when you get this interference in the judicial system, too, um, and the erosion of a lot of these rights, a lot of former opposition, a lot of potential opposition members, practically every former president, practically every former Speaker of the House in El Salvador, are being either investigated right now or have already been imprisoned. So I do think that we can't call it a proper, full democracy, um, maybe a flawed democracy. Um, but it is interesting because it does also raise that question of almost what is a democracy because he is very popular, 90% approval rating. It doesn't matter that the Constitution doesn't say he can run for a second term. 90% of people want him to. That's that's a compelling statistic. And I guess I'll also I mean, add on that only one more little thing, which is dictators can be popular. Pinochet was pretty popular for a lot of his time in Chile. Even when he left, he was voted out um, in a referendum he was kind of forced to do by only six percentage points. 44% of Chileans wanted him to stay. Uh, I think even, and this is a very extreme example, and they're not comparable, but I mean, even Hitler came to power through democratic means. Like the fact that someone is elected democratically in of itself should not necessarily be a warrant for uh, for approval, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I'll I, say also that... I, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, well, this kind of brings you back to the interview. Um where the mayor of AJ, could you remind me of the city again? Yeah, mayor of San Miguel. The mayor of San Miguel um, kind of had a stance on this attendance that where he said something akin to, well, look, it seems like the people keep on electing him again and again. So it seems like he should stay in power. He was saying this in reference to him changing the law on re-election. He said, well, look, it looks like if the people want him to stay in power that should be the case. But uh, the issue I take with that is um, that that is exactly how competitive authoritarian regimes tend to start. It's usually, mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at like Orban, for example, this happens through the consent of the government to a large degree, where a person comes who is very popular, they get elected by the people, and they then start creating situations where it would be hard for them to not get elected. 
and by the time you realize it's it's a bit too late so um well i do admit i i am a pretty big fan of bukele myself i don't think he's gotten to that point yet but i i don't think the guy is without flaws and i do think it's worth watching out for that because i think right. it could very well lead to that type of system if people aren't careful and it's i I'll, think I'll the, just re- the steps are already being taken i'll just read the quote from mayor salgado real quick um when i asked him about that uh, he said So I think that as long as a person goes to popular elections and the people continue to elect them, it's because they're doing something good. And this is in terms of supporting Bukele running for re-election. Yeah. Do do you all agree with the mayor's philosophy? Like, to some extent, I agree with what he's I, I agree with what he's saying. As long as he is being put to free and fair elections, then sure. I I just don't think. I think that um, eventually. It's yeah. I think hypothetically, if all the elections were free and fair, that would be fine. And you know what? I I do think that Bukele should be either the president of El Salvador. I think it's maybe a bit silly that they only have one term. I'd be all for him having like two terms, even three terms, for the things that eventually, when you have a leader who's so entrenched like that, the mm-hmm. chances that the next that the elections are going to continue being free and fair become so reduced that I think that in order to prevent that from happening, you need to have a term limit. I'll, I'll say this on the issue as well, is that I think there's a difference between having a democracy in terms of the raw mechanics of are people casting votes, are votes being counted, and are you having a, a liberal democracy, which is to say, how is your entire political culture structured? Like, do you have a political culture in which there is division of powers and a free press and an, un, um, you know, a, a, an unrestricted opposition? Like, these are, you know, and, and those questions are oftentimes about not the will of the majority, but the rights of the minority, or they're questions not about uh, majoritarian institutions, but but sometimes anti-majoritarian institutions like courts, um, which is like a big debate all around the world. In places like Israel, they're mm-hmm. talking about this this issue as well. Um, so we, we can talk about when people talk about democracy. Sometimes they're talking about you know the power of unelected judges and how they're an important um, an important weight against um, you know very very popular um, single um, leaders. I'll also say that this is like a, a model of governance that I think is becoming much more popular and much more common in, in the world. Like we can talk about Modi's India and um, Turkey, mm. uh, Erdogan's Turkey, very much in the same way. You have these leaders, and it's undeniable that they're very popular. And if that tomorrow there were completely free and fair elections, um, you know, Modi would absolutely win in India. I, I've never read anybody who doubted that. But at the same time, you have to be very concerned about um, you know attacks on media and attacks on the opposition and minority groups. Which is not to say that that's the case in El Salvador, but, but it, it doesn't look like it, it looks like it might be heading in that direction. And it's a, a very common mm-hmm. model of governance, especially in sort of um, low income countries that are aspiring to greater stability and greater wealth. Right. Absolutely. I, I want to shift the conversation, if you all don't mind, towards something I know very little about. And that was the decision of El Salvador to adopt Bitcoin. So, you know, as we went over in the introduction, they adopted it two years ago. Um, their argument was, look. of Salvadorans don't have access to traditional banking systems, financial systems. So if we give them something they can use just on their uh, smartphone, it will make things easier. But of course, Bitcoin, very volatile, unregulated. It's lost a little bit more than 30% of its value since the adoption. Um, And you you heard what the mayor said about it. He thinks it's good because people can choose whether they want to use that or the U.S. dollar. But is it is it something to be concerned about if if too many people choose to use Bitcoin, given its volatility and we see a major crash? 
Well, I guess first of all, I want to say it's it's definitely a big part of Bukele's character. I think he's very much like the new generation. I mean, when you look at the traditional El Salvadorian parties, they're pretty much relics of the civil war they had. One is the continuation of the sort of guerrilla movement, and one is sort of the continuation of the military regime they fought against. I mean, yeah. even his party, Nuevas Ideas, New Ideas. Um, so I think Bitcoin is kind of the currency of the future. It seemed that way by some people. Um, now, I, to be honest, don't know a lot about cryptocurrency. On on one hand, I do see the benefits in that it portrays El Salvador exactly, I think, as Bukela wants it to be seen, as a mm-hmm. forward-thinking country that can get investments from abroad. Um, I mean, I, I think he I think he met with a good amount of people from from China, from the Gulf um, during his presidency. But at the same time, like you say, I do think that Bitcoin has proven to be a bit unreliable um, and very volatile. So I, I can see it being useful for tourism, for investments to an extent. But if it gets too entrenched or it's the main thing people are relying on, I think it's a horrible idea because mm-hmm. I think it could easily lead to an economic crisis that is maybe hard to predict because I, I feel like um, maybe economists don't quite understand Bitcoin as much as other things yet because it hasn't been around for that long. Right. And I think we're as of the last statistics I looked at, we're only looking about a little bit more than 10% of the population who uses Bitcoin semi-regularly as in will as in have used it since they got their free $30 bonus for signing up for the app. Um, do you have any thoughts, Nick? Um, I know this is a difficult conversation for me to add much contribution to just because I don't know a lot about cryptocurrencies either like Diego. I mean, my, my thinking on it is that sort of in line with what Diego says, this is very much like a headlines sort of thing. Like I, I, I don't think this is going to make a huge difference in the lives of most El Salvadorians. I think most are not going to use Bitcoin because it's new and strange and untrustworthy and volatile. I think short term, there's going to be some funny headlines for El Salvador that might be good for investment and good for mm. um, knowledge of the country, and that a few young Salvadorians might lose a bit of money. Um, more than that, I can't imagine it being a, a huge um, for, for the you know for the foreseeable future. I don't think it's going to change things too much because again, they have this choice in their currency. So I'll, I'll add I'll add two things here. First of all, in terms of the investment. I agree. I think it could help, but I also don't think it's going to help as much as the homicide reduction. That there are now yeah, suddenly days in El Salvador where no one is getting murdered, so according to the statistics, and they're they're disputed, but it's undeniable that it is a much safer country now. I think that is going to have a much twenty years from now. That's what we'll be talking about is the reason El Salvador's GDP growth is increasing, assuming it is. Um, the second thing I want to add. In, Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, you can talk about murder, and that's obviously the most important, but in terms of like the economic future, um, the sheer amount of extortion that was being done is, is just weights on, on people that are being lifted. I think you're gonna, you could see like a thriving small-scale economy now that you just couldn't have with all the extortion that was going on. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I completely second that. And also, um, the increasing amount of people who now, because of that safety though too, uh, are now staying in El Salvador and not definitely. Leaving. And granted, again, I should point out these are all trends that began before Bukele. And I think people would argue the extent to which he should get credit for it. But most people, maybe with Nick being somewhat of an, an, an exception in some way, uh, 
do give him some amount of credit for these 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 changes. Um, but the only last thing I'll say about the Bitcoin is I did hear an interview with one uh, San Salvador merchant who pointed out that when El Salvador was ditching its own currency for the U.S. dollar, she didn't want it. She wasn't hoping for it, was what she said. But eventually she got around and did it. I agree. I'm not convinced Bitcoin is going to reach that level. But it does raise that question of like, you know, this is a country, many countries have changed currencies. And this one's not a change, it's just adding an option. But, um, you know, it is possible that people could eventually get on board with it. At any rate, we are uh, getting short on our time on, on time for our, our panel for today. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, before we depart, I think it would be good to just turn it back to this big subject that we've been asking, which is essentially, is, is the... Como, como dice en español, as we say in Spanish, vale la pena, is the pain worth it? Um, when it comes to Bukele, I mean, I don't think, I, I we, we seem to have some disagreement on the level to which he's a little bit more authoritarian, but he has to some extent eroded the judicial. His territorial control plan is, is incarcerating a lot of people without very good process, and probably in the process taking some innocent people in with it. And yet, safety is dramatically better. So what what are your guys' final thoughts? I'll, I'll just say mine real quick, which is, I, I if I give Bukele the benefit of the doubt, I think this could be worth it. I, but that all depends on when he's going to say this is enough. Like if he walked away, if he if he gets into his second term and he says this is going to be my last one, I have much more confidence that this will have been worth it for El Salvador. But I'm worried that it's just going to be the start of someone who will want to really entrench himself in the politics for a long time. And that's where I begin to wonder if it's worth it or not. I think as of now, it has been absolutely worth it. I mean, just look at Mexico, man. Like it, it's gotten to a point where the gangs are just so entrenched in everything that they're, they're, they're not even like criminal gangs anymore. They're pretty much like insurgents and mm. it's just impossible to root them out and it's spilling over the border. Um, I, I don't think when a gang is so entrenched like MS-13 was in El Salvador, I don't think you can um, like really combat them effectively without this mano firme, firm hand policy that he's enacted. I mean, and some people even suggested he tried to negotiate with them, including the State Department. But it seems like maybe those efforts ended in 2022 when MS-13 just went on a killing spree in El Salvador mm-hmm. and, and, and the, throughout the country one weekend. And Bukera just said, that's it. And I think he arrested over 60,000 people and put them in these. I mean, people complain about the conditions in the prisons, but honestly, I I think it sends a clear message that look you wanna you wanna do this you wanna be an MS13 this is what's gonna happen to you and maybe it's not the most democratic thing maybe it doesn't align with Amnesty International but I think that's in order to create a significant change you have to do it it's just a classic question do the ends justify the means I think I think they do hear people I mean the other argument is also very legitimate too mm-hmm. Nick. I mean, I, I'd say that I think some kind of mass militarized response was absolutely necessary um, so that El Salvador would not end up being like Mexico, which is you know, partially a, a narco state at this point. Um, 
at the and at the same time, I'm I'm concerned about separation of powers. I'll I'll say though, uh, you know, the opposition is still more or less free to organize in El Salvador and more or less free to run in elections, at least from what I've read. Um, I, I think it is a question of waiting to see what kind of governor um, Bekele will be in his next term, which assumedly he will get. Um, but I'm concerned about rule of law. I'm concerned about um, separation of powers. But I don't know. I, some kind of mass militarized response to crime was was definitely necessary. Yeah. I think. And I, I'll, I'll just leave us with this thought that I think is something this show always shows to me more and more. You know, as an American, the idea of Nayib Bukele doing what he's doing in El Salvador as the president in my country doing that, uh, it seems unthinkable. But, you know, it is a different circumstance. It was it was a very unsafe country. It did have it has a huge problems with gangs relative to the United States and well, that's why he has 90% approval rating. It'll be interesting to see how El Salvador is doing in five years, to be sure. Um, but that's our panel for today. Uh, thank you very much, Diego and Nick, for joining me. Of course. Happy to be here. Now it's time to spin the globe. our pin has dropped on New Zealand. So check back next Tuesday to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding New Zealand, courtesy of Pindrop. If you want to make sure new episodes of Pindrop are downloaded to your device automatically, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app. Our guest today was Will Salgado. Our panelists today were also the three co-producers of Pindrop. Myself, AJ Camacho, Diego Austin, and Nicholas Castillo. AJ Camacho, that is myself, has been the chief producer of today's episode. Pindrop World News was created by Ian Kearns. 